Hi, it's David Pollan with Hot Button number 119. Toby or not Toby? These are the numbers. I feel like we're in a moment where the opinion-driven journalists are in a tizzy, where the same old scripts aren't feeling so safe. I mean, deciding whose butt will be available to kiss by the end of the year is getting harder and harder. So I thought I would actually chew on some facts today. And I know this is where some of you may move on to that Kardashian podcast. It's okay. I feel your pain. Try living with all this stuff in your head. Anyway, and the fact base that's been most avoided over the last few weeks as you've been talking about the arrival of Time Warner Discovery, it's a retail store, it's a streamer, it's got debt, is the Warner history of Toby Emmerich. And i got to tell you, it's a more complicated process to analyze than you might expect. Toby has been in the driver's seat at Warner's for movie division for, well, since 2017. As you know, we had a bit of a pandemic in Emily and a wild-eyed charmer in Jason Kylar from March 2020 to March 2022. So anyway, I went back to 2017, 2018, 2019 to try to figure out how great or not Mr. Emmerich has been in the chair. Of course, there are a lot of giant variables landing on the desk where the buck stops, many of which very few of us have any knowledge of at all. History is not just gossip over lunch at the grill. But I looked at the 57 titles released domestically and abroad by Warner Brothers in those years. 14.4 billion in grosses. I know. $2.4 billion in annual revenues, just chicken feed in this crazy world of streaming. Ha, ha, ha. Silly little theatrical. Over three years, that's only 20% of the debt load that Time Warner Discovery and that everybody's sweating over. Would clear that right out. But no, nothing. Just throw that back. Not worth it. Anyway, there are a hundred ways of breaking down the list of titles over that time. For instance, 26 of the 57 could qualify as films nobody makes anymore. This list might be led by Dunkirk, followed by A Star is Born, then Crazy Rich Asians. That trio grossed $119 billion worldwide. Excuse me, $1 billion and $190 million <laughs> worldwide. To be fair, the other 23 films I may categorize in this list, without those big hits, grossed only $1.2 billion. That alone makes them about 14% of the revenue for the period. And none of those titles were huge investments, and at least three-quarters of them were profitable. You see, this is how an ecosystem works. In all endeavors, everyone seeks the three movies at the top of the list. Some may want to believe that they can selectively be made without the other 23 films, which are just modestly profitable, a few hundred million a year. Who needs that? But there's no history suggesting that this is the fact for any producer anywhere in history. What we do see is that a producer like Kevin Feige or, Feige or David Heyman can connect with a content brand that is both built by the producer and embody something bigger than the producer and produce 90% plus winners over a run of years. That is a fantastic future for them. But it is not a future that you can plan on as a studio. The irony is that the people who argue the muffin top theory of show business almost all revere Netflix, which operates mostly on the muffin bottom theory of content, which is to say they make tons of muffins and then pack them in and then the muffin tops will show themselves. Somehow this works for Netflix and all the other streamers in the mind of these opiners, but not for theatrical. Anyway, I digress. The top category for Warner Brothers movies is DC franchise films, with seven in those three years, grossing $4.4 billion worldwide. The next group is other franchise films, led by Fantastic Beasts, the two legendary Kong Godzilla films, two Lego movies, Paddington 2, Blade Runner 2049, Tomb Raider and Doctor Sleep, that's $2.7 billion in revenues, or gross Group three is horror, where Warner's had six titles that grossed $2.19 billion. 
just on six titles. Some would say that anyone can do those three parts, those three groups. And I would say that they're being too dismissive of how wrong that process can go, process can go and how often it has. So give Toby the win. That said, how does this top slice of Warner Brothers films compare to other studios? Well, Universal seemed the most apt company to compare them to, given that Disney so narrowly focused now. And as it is inevitable, comparisons get a little tricky. My top category for Universal would be their big franchise titles. They don't have a DC or a Marvel. But in those three years, with one Jurassic title, one Fast and Furious, one Despicable Me, and one Fast and Furious Presents, they did $4.34 billion, matching what Warners did with seven DC titles. Number two for the Universal was other franchises, grabbing $2.04 billion with just six titles, all reboots or sequels. Number three for Universal is Horror, where they managed $1.9 billion with ten titles, less than Warners did with six. And in close for number four slot for Universal is Animation, which actually could be number one if you chose to move Despicable Me 3 into that category instead of the big franchise category, but I'm not going to in this case. So $1.67 billion for Animation, something Warner Brothers is not particularly strong at. Take Skyscraper, which is kind of an outlier for Universal. It really doesn't fit into any other category. And then you get to the list of 21 movies they could have made that nobody makes anymore. And the $2.5 billion that those films gross would be the number two revenue category. But I'm not putting it there because it took so many titles to get to that number. Still, it's significant. And for those who'd make it today titles from 2017 to 2019, you have to include 1917, Green Book, Girls Trip, Yesterday, Last Christmas, Good Boys, First Man, Blockers, and Cats – all of which, for better or for worse, are very sticky titles in the cable and streaming world today and will be indeed in the streaming world of Universal on Peacock eventually or now. I don't even know if they're on the air at this point for Peacock. I would have to check. But anyway, you get my point. Would these films been as sticky while cheap and profitable without a theatrical release? My magic bait ball says no fucking way. <laughs> and apparently Universal agrees pretty much solidly in the 45-day theatrical window camp. Adjustments to come over time based on data. But going back to Warner Brothers, which is really the center focus of this piece, I've only addressed 22 of their titles in those three years so far. So categorizing them from here gets complicated. For instance, I led the piece with films make no, that no one makes anymore. But I wouldn't really include Dunkirk in that because of Nolan or Stars Born because of Gaga and Cooper. They fit, but they were made clearly for reasons other than just we had their screenplay and we developed it and we wanted to make the film. They came in with a lot of attachments that really made the reason were the reason to make the films at the studio. I have five different breakouts for Emmerich's 2019, 2017 to 2019 group in the top three, other than the top three I already detailed, starting with the hardcore films nobody makes anymore. 23 titles with a cumulative gross of 1.4 billion. That includes Crazy Rich, still includes Crazy Rich Asians and Smallfoot, the only $200 million plus titles on that list for Warners. The other groups, Big Budget Originals, Ready Player One, The Meg and Dunkirk grossed $1.6 billion each in profit, and only one of them likely to be a sequel or create a sequel. There were library reboots, Stars Born, Ocean's 8, Chips, Shaft, and Going in Style, $855 million between that group, a little bit soft there. Pop culture relaunches, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, and Pokemon Detective Pikachu created $571 million in gross 
mostly from Pokemon. The King Arthur was kind of a flop there. Then original action movies, they had Rampage and Geostorm, which made $649 million. And just in those last three categories, library reboots, pop culture relaunches, and original action, over $2 billion in gross. So there's value in each of these pieces. You have to look at it as an ecosystem, not as a bunch of individual movies, which you can pick the ones that are going to be successful, the most successful. My conclusion about Toby Emmerich after all this, much to my surprise, an objective look at his buck stop here numbers for the studio three years pre-COVID are significantly better than I expected. I would find a way to probably take away Toby's green light for dramas and comedies aren't really his thing either. But as a store of boy movies, He's clearly comfortable, and the studio has been successful with him leading the way. He has shepherded the franchise content that has been made about as well as one could ask. The results of Aquaman, Joker, and Wonder Woman are a step up from where they were. Now, got to take into account, Wonder Woman 1984 was a terrible movie. Shazam underperformed, and Emmerich still is moving forward with a sequel. And there are rumors abounding about every other DC title that's coming, and they're brutal. A lot of them are brutal. Um, but we'll only know when we actually see them and they actually go to the audience. Fantastic Beasts 3 will depend on international for real success. It's already out there, as the other Fantastic Beasts movies did. We're about to find out how that will do. And the 13 titles from 2017 to 2019 that flopped, that would be, by my estimate, under 50 million worldwide in that period, are almost all dramas and comedies. Like I wrote, it's not his strength. But they shouldn't be abandoned and throw to streaming only. Zaslav should hire someone who knows how to do that well because it takes an ecosystem. There's an urge to dive into 2020 and 2021, but it really isn't fair to Emmerich. His green light was clearly curtailed under Kylar, and the release of his films was skewed by Project Popcorn, the little engine that could not. There are no straight comedies, and the dramas were reduced to King Richard and the Sopranos sequel. I'm sure you're here, bored of hearing it from me, even today. <laughs> But the theory that the business can continue for only big movies does not take into account that someone needs to pay for the brick-and-mortar theaters where these big movies grow so much. It was the expansion of the screen count and a system that allows big openers to be on 15,000-plus actual screens on opening weekend that makes for mega openings. If all there are is big movies, there won't be 15,000 screens to show any movie on, and the price of tickets will be driven up a lot, again shoving customers away from the theaters out of short-sighted hysteria, and drastically lowering the grosses for these big movies, too. But that's not actually what the newsletter is about today. It's about Toby. He's not a, linger, a leader of singular vision. One can't really say, oh, that's a Warner's movie now, or a Toby Emmerich title of any kind. But he keeps the trains running. The studio is in desperate need of someone with a better sense of comedy and drama. That emphasis will be rewarded if they do get one. But... As much as my instinct has been over the last number of years to focus on Emmerich as a clever survivor, that assessment has been too harsh. Unless Zaslav has a specific focus for the future of Warner Brothers film, there's no real demand to make a change in this job, except to bring in that strong second who can actually control comedy and drama output. Have I repeated that enough times yet? It's funny how facts can change your perspective on something you really thought what you knew. Wonder if journalists covering this business could apply such a concept. Hmm... Until tomorrow.